Follow along as I read in Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. He's a regular person like you and I, watching the everyday world around him, just as we do, and struggling with this idea that those whom he thinks are below him in worth seem to be living above him in wealth and wellness. He surveyed the wicked around him, and he made a conclusion that they were living the good life and that he was not. But something happens to Asaph in the middle of this psalm, so I'm giving you a hint, that changes his entire perspective, that refocuses his vision, as we just sang a moment ago. I want you to see if you can determine where that change in perspective is as I read Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, Asaph concludes, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my heart in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish you shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You can be seated. Father, we ask that you would make your word clear to us. 
Lord, I don't think I'm the only one in the room that will say this is very relatable, that we have all been here, that when our eyes are taken off of you and they're focused on the people around us, the seeming injustices around us, the unfair advantages toward those who are not us, we become jealous, envious, and Lord, sometimes it gets to a point where we question your goodness to us. So we can relate to Asaph, but I pray, Lord, that we will end where Asaph ends with a proper perspective, with a regained perspective of who you are and how you are to your people. Would you help us to do that this morning? By your spirit and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Did you notice the change in perspective? Did you notice when everything shifted, when everything turned around? I hope you noticed when we read it and where it happened. If you have marked verse 17 in Psalm 73, you found the pivot point of the psalm. This is where his perspective that was once lost has now been gained, verse 17. Let me ask you a question before we dig into this passage. Two questions, really, Uh, two-part question. Which, Which is more troubling for you? When you see bad things happening to good people or when you see good things happening to bad people? Which is more troubling? Which unsettles you more? When you see good things happening to bad people or bad things happening to good people? This psalm is going to help us answer those questions and come to term with those questions. And by way of a big idea here, and in keeping with Pastor Chris's process here, the big idea of this psalm is this. The sinner lives their best life now, whereas the saint lives their best life later. And by sinner, I'm talking about someone who is lost. We're, we're all sinners, of course, but I'm talking about the unsaved sinner and the saint, the believer. The sinner is living their best life now. The saint, we will live our best life later. Uh, chose this psalm because I hope to try to connect it to, to uh, Philippians, especially the last passage in chapter 4, as Chris has been preaching, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And do you remember the context of that most um, wrongly applied verse in the whole Bible? What was the true context of that? The context is that Paul says, I know what it is to be brought low, and I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, low or abounding, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger or abundance and need. I can do all things, that is, I can be truly content in Christ regardless of what's happening around me or to me. Is is that accurate? Am I understanding that right? Psalm 73 is going to answer similar questions. Both Paul in Philippians and Asaph here in Psalm 73 are finding contentment and sufficiency in the Lord in spite of their quality of life 
or the quantity of blessings that they think they should be receiving. Does that make sense? That's how I'm connecting Philippians with Psalms. And that's the last I'll try to connect the two. This is written by Asaph, this psalm. He writes this one and several more after this and a few more scattered throughout the Psalter. And I said that Asaph was a regular person like us, and he was, but he had a special role. Asaph was, for lack of better explanation, the the choir director of the temple worship. He was in charge of the music in the temple. It would be our equivalent of our Pastor Dave, right? So you can imagine if Pastor Dave was to get up here one Sunday morning and and say, I I need to address the congregation, and I need to confess some things to you. I'm really struggling here. It's fear. It's frustration. Dave says, I'm beyond struggling, actually. I'm I'm about done. I've had it. I'm at the end of my rope. I, I don't think I can go on. What if Dave were to say that? What if he were to say, I'm tired of the wicked winning? I'm tired of trying my best only to be rewarded with trouble. I, I guess church is not worth the effort. I've thought about this a lot, and I, I can't figure it out. Would this be shocking to you? He hasn't said that, at least not to me recently, and I don't think he would say it publicly. But that's what you have, the worship leader who's probably in the Word. He knows his Old Testament because he's singing about the Lord, and he has these genuine struggles Is Asaph the only one in this room? Am I the only one in this room that would admit, yeah, I've I've had some of those questions myself. I think we've all been there, haven't we? Well, as we dig into this psalm, I want to begin with a few introductory observations in the first few verses, and then we'll break it down into the outline of the text itself. And this outline is pretty simple. It's three ways that our perspective will changes. Let me go ahead and give you the three points, and then I'll I'll repeat them as we work through here. The first is this delusion that comes from a worldly perspective. There is a delusion that comes from a worldly perspective. Secondly, we're going to see that there is a direction that comes from a worship perspective. There's a direction that comes, a change in direction that comes from a worship perspective. And thirdly, we're going to see the delight that comes from an eternal perspective perspective, the delight that comes from an eternal perspective. But before we get into that outline, Asaph gives us a few introductory remarks. He actually begins in verse 1 and 2 with a disclaimer about what he believes before he explains his dilemma. And and we're all like that. Look, let let me just say up front, I believe God is good to Israel. I believe that. That's my creed. That's my motto. I have it hanging On the wall in my house, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He affirms up front what he believes, lest any of us think maybe he has totally walked away. I believe God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart, that is believers, those whom he has cleansed, those whom he has purified. I believe that truth about God. God is good. We just sang it. What calms the soul in trouble? God is good. God is good. He believes that. But his vision soon became deluded. He confesses to having almost lost his spiritual footing. My feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly been caused to slip. 
He mentions his creed, God is good. Here's his confession, I almost lost it. And now here's the confusion. I was on the verge of spiritual disaster here. Look at verse 3, for, which means because, here's why, I was envious. I was jealous. I was wanting something I wasn't getting. Envious of who? Jealous of who? Other believers? No, the wicked, the arrogant. Why? Why, Asaph, would you be envious of what the wicked, the arrogant have? He tells us, I saw their prosperity. It's going well for them. And I want that. I wanted that so badly. I wanted it to go well for me. His creed, verse 1, his confession, verse 2, his confusion, verse 3, on the verge of spiritual disaster, about to walk away, about to fall away from his faith, but he didn't. Let's make that clear. He didn't walk away. This, what we see in, in Asaph, I'm saying this to comfort you, this isn't disbelief, this is doubt, and there's a difference. This isn't disbelief, this is doubt. As one church father said, disbelief doesn't doubt. Faith doubts. Unbelief can't doubt because unbelief doesn't what? Believe. Unbelief doesn't believe anything to doubt. So he's not, Asaph isn't an unbeliever who's having doubts. He's a believer who has faith and his faith has doubts. Unbelief just doesn't believe. So this is how he sets up the psalm. And now I want us to see these three perspectives. We'll start with number one. Number one, these are the delusions given by a worldly perspective. The delusions given or delusions that come from a worldly perspective. And you're going to see it aimed at two people, the sinner and the saint, the wicked and the righteous. And then when we get to point two, that perspective is going to change about the wicked and the righteous again. So under these delusions given by a worldly perspective, first we're going to see a delusional view of the life of the wicked. Let's look at the wicked, the way Asaph looked at the wicked, and see if he's viewing things properly. Does he have on the right lenses? This is verses 4 through 12. The delusion begins with the wicked's prosperity. They seem to live a healthy life and die a quiet, painless death. He says in one passage there that their bodies are fat, verse 4. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's not a put down, that's a compliment. What's he saying there? He's saying they've got a lot of money because they eat well. To be fat and large back then was to mean you were wealthy because most people didn't have money, so they didn't have food, so they were skinny. He wasn't, he was complimenting them. They're wealthy because they have money to eat well. And he was jealous of that. Why is this a problem? Well, this is a problem because Asaph thought this is how his life should be. I'm a believer. I'm the worship director for crying out loud. Why isn't my life good that way? Am I the only one that's ever thought something like that? Please tell me I'm not. What's wrong with this line of thinking? Well, it's a gross misconception and misunderstanding of the Christian life, isn't it? To think that because you're a Christian, everything good's going to happen to you. If someone has ever told you, my friend, hey, come to Jesus and everything will be all right. That's just not exactly true. 
Now, there's going to be a lot that's all right. Sins forgiven, praise God. Saved from myself, saved from punishment, saved from death, saved from hell, saved from the grave, saved from the very wrath of God poured out on my sins. Delivered from bondage, yes. No condemnation ever, yes. A home in heaven, amen. Adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, praise God. You're going to get all that later. But in this life, are you promised nice and easy? My Bible doesn't say that. I see Paul telling Timothy, all who just desire to live a godly life will suffer what? Persecution. I see Paul tell his disciples in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. I hear Jesus in John 16, 33 say, in this world you will have what? Trouble, tribulation. Asaph thought his life should be easy. Maybe your life is, but it's not guaranteed. Not here on earth. So the wicked were prospering. The wicked were also avoiding the consequences or so it seemed. Look what else he says in verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They, Asaph is saying, they seem to be getting away with proverbial murder. Or maybe literal murder. I don't know. They're not having the daily problems that you and I have. Not only do they have the blessings that I don't have, they're not receiving the problems that I'm receiving. No money, huge bills, family disputes, faulty relationships. They don't have any of that. Their life is so perfect, Asaph observes. And I would say to Asaph, oh, really? Oh, really? You know that about them? You know that their life is perfect. You know that what goes on inside the four walls of their home is just nice and smooth and June and Ward Cleaver and golly gee and no trouble. You actually believe what they post on their Instagram account, that that's their life all the time? Really? That's what he's believing. He's believing the social media facade of our lives. I I get it. I've taken the pictures of the cute kids right after they're arguing over who's in front. And get out of my way so I can do something cute. It's a facade. We don't really know other people's lives are going so well, do we? In fact, we know the opposite because we know there are discrepancies in our own life from what we portray to the public, don't we? The wicked have also become proud of their prosperity. So they're prospering. He's envious of that. They're avoiding, seem to be avoiding consequences. He's envious of that. And now they're proud of their prosperity. They multiply their sins in their pride. They sport about in it. Their only concern is what they possess and how to get more. Their pride and their violence grow even into blasphemy, speaking arrogantly against others, speaking arrogantly against heaven. Look, they scoff, verse 8. They speak with malice. They threaten oppression. So they're high and mighty, oppressing those underneath them. They set, verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They have it against others. They have it against God himself. They even say in verse 11, how can God know? 
Well, surely there is no God because he's letting me live this way. If you have a problem with my life, take it up with God because he's not doing anything about it. You see the wicked's way of thinking and their pride? Then he says in verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. It's probably the most difficult passage to translate in this chapter. It has the idea, or it can be translated this way, waters of fullness are drained by them. That's kind of a stiff, literal translation. The waters of fullness are drained by them. In other words, everyone around the wicked were just drinking up what they were putting out. It's, it's, maybe we could borrow the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. Man, if the wicked are living like that, I want some of that. Tell me what I need to do. And guess what? Asaph was getting thirsty, wasn't he? He was envious of that. I, I, I want that. The wicked, Alan Ross says in his commentary, the wicked, though, were misinterpreting the patience of God as permission from God. The wicked were misinterpreting the patience of God as permission from God. You know people that don't love the Lord, that are living lives to their own pleasure. I, I was one of those for 22 years, living my life to my own pleasure, serving myself, and thought, well, it must be fine because God's not doing anything about it assuming he was permitting it when, praise God, he was simply being patient with me. Then verse 12, where Asaph summarizes his view, his delusional view of the wicked. Look at what he says. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. This was a delusional view of the life of the sinner. We've been guilty of thinking that about those who don't know and love the Lord. Well, this delusional view also affects his own view of himself. So not only will this worldly perspective dilute our view of the wicked, this worldly perspective will dilute our view of ourselves as saints, as believers. Look at verse 13. And I'm kind of being a little melodramatic here because this is how I'm picturing Asaph saying this. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean. All in vain, I've washed my hands in innocence because I've been stricken all day long. I've been rebuked every morning. What's he saying here? I guess my purity is for nothing. I guess it doesn't even matter that I'm over here trying to live my life pleasing the Lord and... The ungodly are reaping all the benefits. I guess doing what's right just isn't worth it. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Listen, maybe you don't struggle with others getting more than they deserve, but maybe you struggle and fall into this delusion that you're getting less than you deserve. You see, it's just as dangerous If that's the case, let's, let's think about this kind of logic for just a moment. If we're looking at the wicked, the lost, who do not live for God and do not love God and seeing that they seem to have it made, good things are happening to them, their life is easy, then I look at myself as one who claims to love the Lord and am trying to live for the Lord, but I've got it hard. When I say hard, I mean hard. Life is hard even for the believer. We're struggling. Maybe you can all say, I, I'm there. I, I'm struggling. I, I can't find a job. 
Aaron, this is what my life is like. My bills are piling up. My checking account is dwindling down. I've got a toddler who's out of control. I've got a teenager that won't talk to me. My boss hates me. My husband left me. I've been sick for months and no doctor can fix me. That's reality. We're not ignoring those things. But the delusion is thinking that those things should not and cannot happen to the child of God, you see? If I can't get from God in exchange for my love for God, then why even bother? That is a faulty and unbiblical and sinful way of thinking. That's a what's-in-it-for-me attitude, isn't it? Asaph was guilty of that. That, listen, that is what Satan accuses Job of having before the Lord. Remember that? Remember Job chapter 1? Listen to verse 9 and following. Satan answered the Lord. This is, by the way, this is after the Lord suggested Job to Satan, by the way. Satan didn't suggest Job to the Lord. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan answered the Lord, says, does Job fear God for no reason? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. God said, that's why, uh, uh, Satan said, that's why Job loves you because you've given him a bunch. You've protected him and his family and increased his family. But Satan said, you just try stretching out your hand against him. You touch all he has, and by touching, he means taking. And then I bet Job will curse you to your face. That was, Job, that was Satan's accusation against Job. Satan suggesting, hey, your boy Job is just a paid lover. That's why he loves you. That guy down there, that gal down there, they're just paid lovers. They love you just because you're being good to them. Stop being good to them and see if, you still, if they still love you. What if that were said against us. I, I'd never say it like that, Aaron. I wouldn't put it like that. May, maybe not. Maybe we wouldn't put it in those words. I don't want to put the devil's words in your mouth. But if we could maybe tether back to Philippians again, here's another way to think of that. Let's, let's think of this joy theme from Philippians, and we're monitoring our lives. We're monitoring our hearts with a joy meter. Thankfully, there's no such thing. If we're monitoring our joy meter when things don't go our way, where does that joy, what does that joy meter do? What happens to our joy? When bad things happen to the believer, what happens to the joy meter? Is it still pegging out or is it, you think it's broke? Where is our true contentment? Can we say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Even when I'm sick, or even when the family's a mess, or even when the job's unstable or unexistent. Can I truly say with Job, just a few verses later, after the Lord took everything away from him, the Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. And what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say with Habakkuk in chapter 3, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, If the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, if the flock is cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, that's that's the 
the Old Testament version of old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard and the cupboard was bare, right? We've been there. And the bank account was empty. What does Habakkuk say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is what Asaph has to learn. Beloved, the fact that we undergo suffering and difficulty in the Christian life is not evidence. It's not necessarily evidence that God is not loving us. In fact, it's often the opposite. Because what does Hebrews 12 tells us? The Lord disciplines those he, what? Loves. Loves. Then Asaph, in a moment of wisdom and self-control, verse 15, bridles his tongue. He says, if I, if I had said this, if I had said all this out loud, which you would think, well, isn't he doing that now? Well, yeah, but we have the rest of the psalm. But if I had said all this, if I had questioned all these things out loud, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He realizes that his inner struggles shouldn't necessarily be aired out in the open, at least not yet, at least not yet. And we would do well to follow this example, airing out our inner struggles to the public, especially in a world where all of us have a voice to the World Wide Web. All you got to do is type or tap or thumb, and everybody knows what you're thinking, whether they care or not. I'm not suggesting that you bottle up these doubts, these questions, and just keep quiet. I'm not suggesting that at all. By all means, talk about these things. Talk to a trusted friend. Counsel with a brother or sister. Confide in a pastor. But refrain from public declarations. Verse 16, he acknowledges how difficult this is to understand. So it is difficult. So by all means, figure it out first before you go public with it. Look, get to the end of the maze before you turn around and start directing the people behind you. Then you can say, yeah, I've been there before. It's dark. It's difficult. It's delusional. But I got out of it, and here's how. Before you start spouting off about the problems, make sure you have an answer if you're going public. I might just say here as well, just a a note of application for parents of teenagers. You need to create in your home an environment where these kind of questions and doubts are welcome. Don't be afraid of them. These theological doubts, theological questions, biblical questions, they they can be expressed by your teenagers without you having to freak out or be frightened. Because listen, if you're not willing to discuss these things with your kids, there's a college professor waiting for them their freshman year who's going to shred any kind of biblical foundation they have, or at least try to. I guarantee you there's a TikTok channel out there right now that's doing this same thing, trying to deconstruct your children and knock the legs out from under what they believe. So you better be the one to talk about them. Invite these questions. And, and be honest. I, I said to one of my children once, yeah, I, I've had those same questions, and I still have those questions and doubts at times. Look, there's, there's a difference. There's 
there's a different, there are different levels of doctrine that we can talk about, many of which we can agree to disagree on. If your child grows up and they join a church of a different denomination, that may not necessarily be bad. If they join you know, Jehovah's Witness, that would be really bad because then there's a doctrinal difference there. There's also a difference in saying, I don't believe in the Trinity. Well, that's one thing. There's another difference to say, you know, I, I just can't figure out the Trinity. Well, who can? But I believe it. I don't have it figured out. So create an environment in your home where these kind of questions are welcome and talk to them and make sure you have answers for them. Go to the book. God's not afraid of these questions, right? So here we are with Asaph at the point where he just doesn't understand why. It's a wearisome task. That is a miserable task, he says in verse 16. I I don't understand, God, why this has happened. So what does he do? He worships. He worships. When we don't know why, we worship. Amen? Don Carson says we uh, God wants our trust even more than he wants our understanding. And so Asaph, in the pivotal verse here, goes to the sanctuary of God. This is the true turning point of the psalm because true worship always brings forth truth about God and his ways. You know that. I hope you understand that. Listen, we've said this before, we'll say it again, that our ultimate concern here, I'll say our collectively as pastors, but Dave's primary concern when he selects songs and looks for new songs and sings old songs is not necessarily the style, because my goodness, you're not going to please 300 people. Not the speed, not the tempo, not even the emotion behind a song. Listen, I have songs that I get emotional singing. I have songs that have uh, nostalgic memories for me. You, you guys do too. But that's not what's most important. That's not unimportant. But what's most important when Pastor Dave brings a song to us is the content that we're singing because we're singing truth to one another. Did you hear him this morning? Let's sing the truth of this song to one another. It's the truth contained within is what assists us in true worship. I need to be reminded what's going to comfort my troubled soul. God is good. I need to be reminded of that every moment of my life. You will too. You're amening now, but you'll walk out these doors and you'll forget it. We all suffer from spiritual amnesia, don't we? Asaph noticed that he he did not withdraw, which is what a lot of people do when they have these questions. They pull out, they stop going to church, I can't figure it out, I've got all these questions. That's the opposite of what we need to do. We need to run to the truth. If you truly have questions, then consider the source. Well, I'm going to stop reading my Bible because I can't figure it out. Well, if, if I stopped reading my Bible the moment I couldn't figure it all out, I would have given up years ago. But I'm still reading so that I, the Lord will help me figure it out. He understood, Asaph understood the value of what we would call today corporate worship. Preaching, fellowship, singing, praying, 
It's all koinonia, you know that word, because koinonia, true fellowship, centers around the truth of the Word of God. We preach the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, your conversations should be around the Word. And when someone is struggling and someone is complaining and someone is crying, you comfort them with the Word. Asaph understood that and he went and he worshipped. His problems didn't disappear. Life didn't let up for him. But the fog of delusion was beginning to lift a bit. You see? His thinking has now been recalibrated. His a dissonant song of complaint has now been tuned. He's now, if I give you a third illustration, his, he's now looking through the lens of God-centered worship and he sees more clearly, amen? Has that ever happened to you? You've got troubles, you've got problems, you've got questions, you come, you worship, you hear from the Lord and you say, okay, I, I see a bit clearly now. I understand that now. I love when that happens in the counseling room or sitting across from someone and you're sharing scripture and you can almost see the lights go on. Maybe that happens in here. This perspective that had once been lost has now been gained. What perspective? What what did he see? What did he see that changed his perspective? Two little words in verse 17. The end. He saw the end. Okay, now I see what's going to happen. Notice even the change in pronouns. In, in this version of my Bible, I have they and their, all those third-person pronouns highlighted, and I've got red marks all in the first half of this psalm. And then right after verse 17, I started highlighting you and your referring to God, and they're all highlighted in a different color. You can visually see He's gone from looking at other people to now looking at the Lord. His perspective has changed. Where has he been looking? Everywhere else. Where is he looking now? To the Lord. Which brings us to point number two. The direction that comes by a worship perspective. The direction that comes from a worship perspective. He worshiped. He has a new perspective on life. A new view of the wicked and a new view of the righteous. A new view of the sinner and a new view of the saint. Let's look at his new view of the wicked beginning in verse 18. Again, just repeating verse 17. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Then I discerned therein. That word discerned is important. It means understanding. Over seven times in Psalm 119 that we're memorizing The psalmist says, God, give me understanding according to your word. And he got it. Now I understand their end. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. I I thought I was the one about to slip. They're the ones that are about to slip. I thought I was the one that was about to fall away. They're the ones that are about to fall to ruin. He saw that their end was judgment. His eyes were diverted. His gaze shifted from the here and now to the hereafter. Listen, beloved, if all he knew were what he saw, then he had every right to despair. If all we know is what we see around us, I don't blame you for being despairing. I don't blame you for being discouraged. 
I don't blame you for turning off the news. I'm turning off the news with a knob. TVs don't have knobs. Clicking off the news. But he knows more because now he sees more. What does he see? He sees the end. I know how it's going to end. Hey, I've, I've read the last chapter. We win. God wins. If all he knew were what he saw, he had every right to despair, but he didn't because now he sees more. It's the slippery who are in slippery. It's the wicked who are in slippery places. They will one day soon be swept away. And this, verse 18 and 19, this fantasy dream that they've been living, thinking the Lord is asleep and not attentive, will be awoken into a night terror when God does rise up and inflict judgment on the wicked. It's going to happen. Jesus has come once on a donkey offering peace to all who would believe in him. And he comes again riding on a white horse to conquer and to rule. Asaph realizes in this new direction given by, a worship, given by a worshipful perspective, he realizes that for the wicked, their life is short, death is sudden, hell is forever, and the wealth that they, that all, they all once envied will be gone in the blink of an eye. He knew that the wicked knew nothing about storing up treasures in heaven. He realized that they were living their best life now. L- live it up. Live it up, my friend, because this is the best it's ever going to get from you. Because in the moment of death comes judgment. So his view of the wicked was changed by this worship perspective. His view of himself was now changed by this worship perspective. Look at how he views himself now. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph realized that his self-perception also needed changing. And what do we do? What does the believer do when, our, when we realize that our thinking or speaking or our actions are wrong? What do believers do? We repent, right? This is what Asaph is doing. He's repenting. Notice the remorse that follows. He is grieved in his soul. He says, I was embittered. That's grief. That's the, the idea of soured. My soul was soured over my sin. This phrase, pricked in heart, literally means pierced in my kidneys. Pierced in my kidneys. When, when you hurt for somebody, and, and you, we, we, what we would say today is my heart hurts for you, right? But where do we really hurt? Not here. We hurt where? Down here. It's, it's the idea of compassion. It comes from the guts, from the kidneys. He's pierced down deep, embittered, soured in his soul. It's a gut-wrenching guilt that he's confessing. And he realizes, verse 19, how brutish, excuse me, verse 22, how brutish. That means foolish. It's the proper use of the word stupid. And foolish he was. How ignorant he was as a beast. As a beast, my, my actions were no better than animal instincts, Lord. I acknowledge that. He could be referencing Psalm 49. You might footnote that or cross-reference that in your Bible if your Bible hasn't done that already. Psalm 49, 10 through 13, where again the psalmist is admiring the wicked and says, but yet even the wise, even the wicked will die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and live their wealth, leave their wealth to others. 
and he calls them beasts. He is like the beasts that perish and those who have foolish confidence. He may be referring to that idea. Asaph is saying what every parent in this room, what every parent of adult children are hoping for, that our kids will finally come to us and say, Mom, Dad, now that I've grown up, I'm out of the house, I've experienced life, you know what? (laughs) You were right all those times. Don't we long for that day? That day is yet to come in my house. But (laughs) Asaph is saying, Lord, you're right. You're right. You are good. You, You do know what you're doing. Your promises are true. Judgment will come in the end. Maybe not now. This is Asaph's redirected view from this worship perspective. And there's a final change of perspective, a final adjustment to his perspective that comes from God-centered worship. And this perspective isn't focusing on the end as much as it's focusing on God himself. Look at how he ends this psalm in some of the most beautiful verses in our Bible. Two things that he realizes in particular, and I'm going to call them his, he, he recognizes God's nearness and God's enoughness. Can I make up that word? His nearness and his enoughness. God is near and God is enough. This is what anchors him. This is what keeps his perspective focused. The delight that comes from an eternal perspective. He now sees that God is near, verse 23 and 24. Asaph says, and it's astonishing and surprising that all this time and with all these doubts, Asaph now finally realizes, nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Why is he continually with the Lord? He wasn't commending himself. He wasn't commending his own faithfulness. Look at what he says. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, in the end, you will receive me into glory. I have written out beside in my margin, we are grasped with his hand. We are guided with his counsel. And praise God, one day we will be glorified in his presence. Amen? That's what we hold on to. If I look around me, my vision is going to get blurry. I'm going to be out of focus. My perspective is going to be diluted. But if I look to the end, I know that he's with me. He's grasped me. He's guiding me. One day he will glorify me. That was his hope. What does Paul say in Romans 8? We know and we believe that the sufferings of this life are nothing to be compared with the glory that is to be ours in the next, right? Hold on, believer. Hold on. Wait. Wait. That's another popular theme in the Psalms. Wait. And how many of us love to wait? Nobody. I don't like waiting on my microwave. We now have instant messaging, and we get tired of waiting for instant messaging. We're not a people who love to wait, and so the Psalms tell us, wait, 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 because in the end, everything wrong will be made right. So he sees God as near, and then he sees God as enough. I, th- I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that we as believers are less likely to doubt God's presence 
than we are to doubt God's sufficiency. I think it's easier for us to believe, yeah, I know God is near, God is here, God is everywhere, but I have trouble believing he's enough. I have more trouble believing he's sufficient. How do I know that? Because I sin. Every time I sin, I'm saying, I have another way to get what's best for me, and it's not God. Every time I sin, I'm saying, God, you're not enough, I know better, and so I'm going to act or speak or think in this way. I'm saying, God's not enough. He sees God as near. He sees God as enough. If you want two excellent fighter verses, memory verses to fight this fight of doubt and faithlessness and questions, then memorize Psalm 25 and 26. Maybe you already have. Whom have I in heaven but you? What's the answer? No one. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh And my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion, my enoughness forever. That word portion means enough, enough. Corey Ten Boom was right. You never realize Jesus is all you need until what? Jesus is all you have, yeah? She knew. There is nothing in all of heaven that we need other than God, and there's certainly nothing on earth worth having besides God. I love the chorus from the old Cademan's Call song back in the 90s. This world has nothing for me, and this world has everything. All that I could want, but nothing that I need. You believe that. You believe God is enough. Beloved, Asaph is now as content as Paul was in jail. He is now as content as Habakkuk was in famine. He is now as content as Job was in grief. Are you? He sees that though he didn't think he had much, he realizes that he has God and that's enough. Listen, when the eternal God is our greatest joy then we don't care when others are enjoying the fleeting riches of this world, right? When the eternal God is our greatest joy, then we won't care that others are enjoying the fleeting riches of this world. Hey, you go ahead. You go ahead. Enjoy your life now. Because what I got's coming, what I have coming is much better. Amen? Much better. This adjusted perspective can now clearly see the end We read Psalm 73, we're given a God-centered, eternal perspective that helps us to make sense of what seems to be gross injustice and what seems to be a misappropriation of blessing and benevolence, as if we know what God can do with His grace. He can do whatever He wants with it. We need to remember these things, just a few kind of take-home points. We should remember, when our hearts are not grounded in truth, when our hearts are not grounded in truth, the fact that things aren't going well for us gets confused with the delusion that God is not being good to us. The fact that things are not going well for us will get confused with the delusion that God is not being good to us. Something else to remember. God is good. God is good. Our eyes should be on the eternal goodness of God rather than the temporary goodness 
of the ungodly. Our eyes should be on the eternal goodness of God rather than the temporal goodness of the ungodly. God's goodness is according to His divine purposes, not our selfish plans. I know, I think I know what's good for me. You think you know what's good for you, don't you? Who knows what's good for you? God and only God. So his goodness is according to his divine purposes. A couple more. When we're tempted to look all around us, when we're tempted to look at others, especially the wicked and their apparent life of ease, we need to remind ourselves of two things. Those without Christ, their best life is now. And for them, it will only get worse. Those without Christ, their best life is now. For them, it will only get worse. What a motive to evangelize. Second thing, for those with Christ, their best life, your best life, beloved, is yet to come. For us, it will only get what? Better. Better. For truly, God is good to his own. How can we believe this? How can we believe these truths? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. Because Jesus is the only person to walk this earth who was ever truly and fully treated unjustly. When persecution happened to him, while others around him prospered, Jesus suffered in our place so that one day we would suffer no longer. Jesus truly had the eternal perspective that kept his eyes focused on the end, not just the cross, but the resurrection. Amen? Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he is seated, now resurrected at the right hand of the throne of God. We can believe that God will make all things right in the end because Jesus defeated all things that were wrong on the cross. He lived the life we could not live. He died the sacrificial death that we deserved in our place. And then he rose from the grave three days later, proving he defeated sin, and death, and hell, proving that his saving work, as Pastor Chris tells us every week, his saving work worked. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? Is he your sufficiency? Would you trust him today? Would you call out to him to save you and claim that promise of eternal life? Not a life of ease here, but a life of eternity there. Your pastors would love to talk to you about this as we prepare to sing a final song when the service is over. We invite you to come and talk to any of the pastors about what it means to love the Lord, to be a Christian. If you're a believer here and you're struggling, thinking your life is unfair, we'd love to talk to you from God's Word about that. Hopefully Asaph has counseled you from this psalm this morning. Join with me as we pray. Oh, Father, adjust our perspective. Recalibrate our thinking. Tune Tune us where we've gone out of tune in our theology, what we believe about you. Help us to see the end. Not only so that we see so that we can see what the wicked have coming, but so that we can be reminded of what you've promised the believer. Eternal life in your presence. No more sin, no more suffering, no more hardship. No more tears. 
We long for that day. And until that day, would you keep us faithful? Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.